Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1046. If you're a guest with us today, we've been working through this section in Matthew's Gospel, and we've made it about halfway through chapter 18. And I'm going to speak for a few minutes on this subject today, Embrace the Awkward. Now, while you're finding your place there, I want to take a moment and give you an update on school. Uh, Lord willing, in five months, I will turn in my dissertation project on January 15th, and all that will be left is to defend it and make edits. Um, I'm going to be writing and preaching on suffering in the life of a Christian. And we're going to study together the book of Job over 12 weeks. And so I want to say to you, thank you for your prayers and your interest and your encouragement and your support over the last two and a half years as I've been in school. And ask for your help in five ways over the next five months. First of all, in a week, week and a half, you will receive a letter from me, and you'll also receive a survey on the subject of suffering. Uh, part of my project requires that I survey the entire congregation before I preach the sermon series, and then survey the congregation after I preach the sermon series to see if the sermon series helped at all. And then I'm going to have to write about 30 pages based on those two surveys. And so I would ask that you take the survey and you turn it in on time and then take the survey at the end of the sermon series and turn it in on time that would be most helpful to me. Secondly, my schedule for the next five months is going to look a little different in some areas. Uh, the amount of work that has to be done uh, is a lot, and I don't want to bore you with all of that. But needless to say, some things are going to have to change in my schedule. This is a temporary change. Temporary change. Hopefully, 18 years with you, you understand that that's temporary. And I'm asking simply for grace, that you would work with me and show me grace over the next five months. Having said that, number three, we are a church that equips and we are a church that raises up leaders and teachers. And I'm thankful to God for that. We have no lack of supply of teachers and preachers in this church. And so over the next five months, some of these men are going to have to stand in in different places on my behalf and help. And I want your help in supporting them and encouraging them. And just because Pastor Darren may not be teaching Bible study one night, that doesn't mean you should take the night off. You should come and support the other teachers and leaders in the church. Number four, 
the last Sunday of September, I'll start the sermon series on Job, and it will go for 12 weeks, and I'll be preaching 12 weeks straight in a row uh, through the book of Job. And I would ask that you make it a priority to be present in worship just like you are today. I really believe that this is an important series for the life of our church, and God will use it to help us. And so I don't want you to miss out. I want you to be present. And finally, and most importantly, please pray. You've been faithful to do that, and I would ask over the next five months that you pray specifically for these things. I couldn't have done it the past two and a half years, all that I've done without my family's support and help and without your support and help as a church family. So I'm asking you to bear with me just a little bit longer as we go through this process together. All right? That's enough of that. Let's turn to the Word of God, and we're going to begin reading in verse 15. And this is what the Word of God says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. When Gretchen and I began parenting teenagers, I coined a phrase that we continue to use to navigate all of the uncomfortable but necessary issues that must be addressed as parents in these crucial years. This phrase has become somewhat of a family motto, so much so that I have often threatened to have t-shirts made for the entire family with this phrase imprinted upon them. Aren't you dying to know the phrase? We embrace the awkward. And as a family, when we need to address something uncomfortable or difficult, and we're not quite sure where to begin, we look at our kids and say, in this house, we embrace the awkward and we start talking. As I was studying this passage of Scripture and these words from the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew's Gospel, it occurred to me that this family motto summarizes Jesus' instructions regarding the often misunderstood subject of church discipline. To the world and to many modern Christians, church discipline is deemed as 
legalistic, it's unloving, and it is strongly rejected. One author effectively summarized the contemporary church's dismissal of church discipline, stating, The church today is suffering from an infection which has been allowed to fester. As an infection weakens the body by destroying its defense mechanisms, so the church has been weakened by this ugly sore. The church has lost its power and effectiveness in serving as a vehicle for social, moral, and spiritual change. And this illness is due, at least in part, to the neglect of church discipline. I want you to know this morning that rather than being viewed as unloving and rather than being viewed as legalistic, your Bible that's sitting in your lap in front of you views church discipline as an essential ingredient to the health and the life of the church. The context for properly understanding church discipline is the broader context of Matthew chapter 18, but in particular, the parable of the lost sheep that we studied last week in verses 10 to 14. You'll recall that in this parable, Jesus taught us that God the Father's concern for sinners and the shepherd's rescue of those who have wandered from the flock are to be examples for the church to follow. And out of this context of Matthew chapter 18 and this context of the parable of the lost sheep, we can glean four reasons why we should practice church discipline. Now, this is not the outline of the sermon. This is still introduction. But the reasons are important. Number one, the church should practice church discipline because the church should value each and every sheep, especially the ones that stray. Number two, the church should practice church discipline because just as the shepherd rejoices over finding the lost sheep, we as a church want to celebrate and rejoice over our brother or sister in Christ who has been restored to our church family. It's a time of joy and celebration in the life of the church. Number three, the church should practice church discipline because the church wants to guard personal holiness. Because the church wants to guard those who are weaker in the faith. And because the church wants to guard its testimony to the world. When church discipline is properly exercised, it protects, it purifies, and it prevents the spread of sin throughout the body of Christ. And number four, the church should practice church discipline because we are commanded to do so. Do you have your Bible open in your lap? If you read 
through this passage of Scripture, you will find, if you look carefully, in verses 15 to 17, Matthew uses the word if five times. And after every occurrence of that word if, Jesus issues a command. And so above everything else... The reason why the church should practice church discipline is simply because the church wants to obey the Lord of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, just as a loving parent will embrace the awkward with their teenager and lead them to a place of health, and well-being, so too will a loving church embrace the awkward to lead God's people to a place of health and well-being. This passage of Scripture before us is a practical guide for embracing the awkward subject of church discipline. And so today and next Sunday... As a church family, we are going to embrace the awkward together and learn about church discipline. So the first thing that I want us to see in this passage this morning is the purpose of church discipline found in verse 15. You have your Bible open? Here we go. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So what is the purpose of church discipline? Well, the purpose of church discipline is found at the very end of verse 15, where Jesus says, you have gained your brother. That is the purpose. You gain your brother or sister in Christ. Now the word gained comes from a term that was originally a term used in commerce. It refers to financial gain or profit. And in this context, It refers to the gaining back of something of value that is lost. Namely, a wandering brother or sister in Christ. Jesus illustrated in verses 10 to 14 of this chapter in the parable of the lost sheep that even though the shepherd had 99 out of the 100, the one sheep that was lost was so valuable to the shepherd that he left the 99 and he went out in search of the one. And that is the picture behind this purpose of church discipline. God so highly values every single one of his children that when even one of them goes astray, he will not rest until they are found, until they are rescued, and until they are returned to the flock. And so the purpose is simple. You rescue 
the one who is lost. Jesus summarized the purpose of church discipline at the end of his parable in verse 14 of this chapter. He said, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God is not willing that even one of his children would be perished and lost. And so, friends, the purpose of church discipline is not to throw people out of the church. It's not to embarrass them. It's not to treat them unkindly. It is not to feed the self-righteousness of those who are acting in pride through the process of church discipline. The purpose of church discipline is simple. We practice church discipline in order to gain back a treasured brother or sister in Christ who has drifted away from their Lord and who has drifted away from their church family. And just as God the Father is not willing for one of His children to perish... We, as Christians, should not be willing for one of our brothers or sisters in Christ who are a part of this church family to go strain and perish. In this way, we as a church should reflect the heart of our heavenly shepherd and seek to rescue the straying sheep. That is the whole purpose of church discipline. And I submit to you this morning that if you view church discipline through the lens of the world, you will say what the world says about it. That it's the most unkind thing that the church could do. It is the most unloving thing that the church could do. It is the most hypocritical thing that the church could do. And when you say that about church discipline, let's just be clear, friends. It's just you and me in the room. Let's just be clear. You are going against what God says about church discipline. Because he says the exact opposite. That it's his heart that his church, his people, would rescue those who are in danger of perishing. And so, when you see or hear of a brother or sister in Christ who has strayed and wandered away, or you see or hear of a brother or sister who is living in open rebellion and sin, what is your response? What is your response? Do you ignore them? Hope that the problem will go away? Do you talk about the tragedy of their sin and their fall to others, but never talk to them about it? Do you say to yourself that that's none of your business and it's none of the church's business? Do you opine that you certainly would never do anything like that if they just had their act together like you did? It'd be a different story do you judge those who try to step in and speak into the situation to make it better 
Or are you so burdened and filled with compassion over what's happening in your brother or sister's life that you're willing to go and seek them and rescue them from danger so they could be put back in a right relationship with God and his people? Well, friends, it's certainly something to consider. Certainly something to think about and examine. This is the purpose of church discipline. To rescue and gain your brother or sister back. But we not only see the purpose of church discipline. In this passage, Jesus also teaches us about the process of church discipline. In verses 15 to 17. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In these verses, verses 15 to 17, Jesus outlines the process of church discipline that the church is to follow. And he gives us four steps that we're to follow. And this process of church discipline begins in verse 15 with a private conversation. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Jesus' first step in church discipline is simple. But at the same time, it is possibly the most difficult There are very few of us in this room and very few people in the world who enjoy confrontation. And if you are one of the few in this room this morning that enjoys confrontation, you are certainly in the minority and God bless you. But for most of us, we do not enjoy confrontation especially when it involves challenging someone about their faults and their failures and their sins. But Jesus is teaching us in verse 15 that this confrontation, this private conversation is actually a kindness. It is actually an act of love to restore a brother or sister in Christ to a right relationship with God. Now the basis of Jesus' words in this verse are found all the way back in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. And it is in the context of loving your neighbor. And I want you to listen to these pointed words because they really do shed light 
on Jesus' words here in verse 15. Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Why should you have a private conversation? Moses says, so you won't hate your brother in your heart. And so you could reason frankly with your neighbor. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Why should you have a private conversation? Why should you care enough to confront so that you won't take vengeance into your own hands? So that you won't bear a grudge against someone else. So that you will love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Because God is the one who has established this principle. Now notice in verse 15, who is confronting whom? Jesus says it is brother to brother. So now let's unpack this. When he uses the word brother, who is he talking about? Well, it's an inclusive term. It refers to every Christian, young or old, man or woman, educated or uneducated, wealthy or poor, leader or follower. This private conversation is to be done brother to brother, sister to sister, Christian to Christian. And you'll notice in the text in verse 15, that this type of conversation is only to occur if your brother sins against you. And the word sin that he uses here in verse 15 is the common word that is used for sin in the New Testament. It literally means to miss the mark. And just as the word brother is inclusive, the word sins is inclusive. It is not referring to one specific sin. It is referring to all sin because all sin is an offense to the holiness of God. And because all sin mars a Christian's fellowship with God and other believers. And so this conversation is to take place Christian to Christian. It is to take place when your brother sins, notice the text, against you. Now there's disagreement among scholars as to whether this phrase against you should be included in this verse because there's variance in some of the early manuscripts. But the King James Version has against you in it. The ESV has against you in it. And most of the reliable early manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew have the phrase against you in it. But what really strengthens the fact that this phrase should be seen as included in Jesus' commands is Peter's question in verse 21 in the very next section when he asked Jesus how often he should forgive those who sin against him. Similar language and so this command should be seen for what the text says sins against you the apostle paul issued a similar command about sins 
in Christians addressing the sin of another Christian. He said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, and you should keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so whether Jesus is referring to someone sinning personally against you, or whether you know someone who is caught in the cords of their sins, the application is still the same. Paul says in Galatians 6.1, if you see your brother or sister in sin, go rescue them. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go talk to them. Either way, you're not off the hook. There must be confrontation. There must be a conversation. Now, I want you to remember something about step number one. And this private conversation between two Christians. The implication, this is very important. The implication that Jesus is giving is that a brother or sister sins directly against you and they do not seek your forgiveness. Or a brother or sister is caught in sin and they refuse to turn from it. Either way, they are unrepentant in their sin. You say, why are you emphasizing this implication? Because Jesus is not teaching you and me to use this verse as a spotlight and shine the spotlight on every single personal sin and flaw in one another's life and then drop the hammer on each other every time we see one another. That is not the point. The Apostle Peter, who was given these instructions by Jesus, is actually very helpful on this point. In the book of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1, Peter is writing about how as Christians, before we knew Christ, we spent enough of our time living for the flesh and living for the world and living for the desires of the flesh. And we've got the rest of our life to live for Christ. And it's in the context of the last days. And Peter says, so as you see these last days approaching, live the rest of your life for Christ. And not for the flesh. And not for sin. And not for the world. And as you're living for Christ in the context of living in the last days, Peter says this in verse number 8. Above all. Keep loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. And Peter's teaching us that we don't enter into this restoration process that Jesus is giving us in verse 15 every time our brother or sister in Christ annoys us or gets on our nerves or displeases us or irritates us with some minor issue if that were the case friends do you realize all we would ever do is deal with the annoyances no you're you're to show love and grace and charity 
and patience and long-suffering because all of that will cover a multitude of sins. And oh, by the way, what Peter is teaching and what Jesus is teaching is really important. It's really important because we're living in the last days. And I'm not saying that in some prophetic way. I'm saying it in a very biblical way. The moment Jesus ascended to heaven, we became the last days. We're living in the last days. And we've lived enough of our time in the flesh for the world. It's time to live for God, for his kingdom. And I really feel that and I really sense that. Then I need to admonish you and encourage you with everything that's in me to wake up from your sleep and to pay attention to what's happening around you. Because Jesus is going to come back one day, friends, and you don't want him to come back when things aren't right between you and someone else. You want to live for love and grace and rescue. That's the point. It's the point. So these minor offenses are to be covered by grace and love. But all other offenses, Jesus says... We are to go and tell our brother his fault. Do you see it in the text? We are to go and tell our brother his fault. What, notice what Jesus did not say. He didn't say to wait. He didn't say to sit and sulk. He didn't say to give them a cold shoulder or ignore them. Could you think about that? Like, you say you gather to worship the God that we just sang about a few moments ago. But you won't even talk to somebody else in the room. Are you kidding me? I'll tell you what the Bible says about that kind of religion. It's worthless and empty and trash. And God will have none of it. None of it. You are fooling yourself. If you think you can harbor unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment towards someone and then stand with a pure heart and clean hands and sing, Behold our God. Never happen. Never happen. It's worthless. Empty. So you give the cold shoulder. You ignore. And the whole time you tell yourself, everything's right. It's all good. Deceived. And Jesus says, look at the text. You're to go. It means that this conversation should take place as soon as the offense is known. It should take place so soon in order to turn the sinning believer from their sin and to help avoid resentment and bitterness in the heart of the one who is offended. You need to remember this morning, friends, that bitterness and resentment are just as much as a sin as the one who has sinned against you. And you like to think that you have a right to resent you have a right to forget, not forgive. You have a right to be bitter. After all, you're the one that has been wronged. 
But in your pride, your pride is covering up your own sin. The longer sin continues, the more difficult it is to forsake it. And the more difficult it is to achieve forgiveness. Walls get built up. Hearts get hardened. Justification takes place. So Jesus says we're to go. Not only does he say we're to go, look at the Bible. He says we're to tell him his fault. The word tell has a root meaning of bringing something to light or exposing it. The language here suggests that the brother or sister is to be shown their sin in such a way they can't escape recognizing it for what it is. They can't escape it. It's been brought into the light. The implication is that the one who is sinned against should approach the offender in a spirit of humility, in a spirit of meekness, that their motive for this private conversation should be one of rebuke that leads to restoration of a brother or sister to holiness, that it's never motivated by vindictiveness, that the one who initiates this conversation manifests a spirit of love and forgiveness even while they are rebuking and telling the fault. And they're deeply concerned about the one that they're talking to. And they have a genuine desire for reconciliation to take place. Now notice also in the text that the goal in this first step is to keep the circle of those who know about the sin as small as possible. Do you see, do you see it? Do you see it in the text? Rather than talking about the sin with someone else, which is often the very first thing that we do, Jesus says that we're to go directly to the person that we have conflict with and tell him his fault. Look at what the text says. Between you and him alone. Why? Because the more you gossip about the sin, the more you spread the sin around the life of the church, no matter how well-meaning you might be, the easier it is for the one who is living in sin to be resentful, and the harder it becomes to achieve restoration. And Jesus is teaching us that we are to love our brother or sister enough to privately address their sin. We are to love them in such a way that we do not talk to everyone else about their sin. We are to love them enough that we refuse to sit back and watch them drift deeper and deeper into sin. And we are to love them enough to take the initiative and have this private conversation. We are, in effect, brothers and sisters, to embrace the awkward. That's what he's saying. And what happens? What happens when you follow Jesus' instructions? Notice what he said at the end of the verse. If he listens to you, you have gained 
your brother. I love the word listen. It's used all throughout this text. It's a strong emphasis to the point that Jesus is making here. It is a good thing to listen. And sometimes that's the most difficult thing for us to do. To not defend, to not justify, but to actually listen. And the emphasis here is that you go to your sinning brother or sister with an effort to win them, to gain them back. Listen carefully to me, church. You don't go to them to win the argument. Now, I'm talking to some in the church this morning. You who like confrontation and like to win. You can win the argument and lose your brother or sister. It's not about winning the argument. It's about listening. It's about the conversation. It's about the process. It's about restoration and reconciliation. The picture that Jesus is painting here is that forgiveness is extended. Confession and repentance are achieved. Your brother or sister's relationship with Christ is restored. And reconciliation between two believers is experienced. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter was intimidated by the Judaizers in Antioch, and he began to separate himself from the Gentile believers. And the Apostle Paul called him out, and he opposed him to his face. And he told Peter that he was wrong. And do you know that in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter wrote... These are the words of the Bible of his beloved brother, Paul. I think that Peter had a greater affection for Paul in his ministry because Paul was willing to embrace the awkward and point Peter back in the right direction. And he loved him for doing it. A simple verse, isn't it? Yet, so difficult. What are we to do with it? Well, I've got some thoughts. Number one, this first step does not involve the church leadership. It begins between you and another person. And by the way, this is where most church discipline should take place. That if every Christian understood the principle of this verse, and every Christian submitted to the principle of this verse, there's a great probability that we would not need step two, three, and four. Number two, this first step 
implies that this is the kind of interaction that is supposed to happen all the time in the context of our relationships within the church. That this should be the norm. We should care for one another in such a way that we right all wrongs. Number three. In following this first step, the Christian does not condemn, nor does he justify a sinning brother. His concern is for the holiness of his brother or sister in Christ, the purity and integrity of the church, and the glory of God. So they don't push the sin to the side and justify it and say, oh, they're just having a bad season in their life. And they don't condemn them and say, oh, if they were more like me, they wouldn't do stuff like that. They care about personal holiness. They care about the integrity of the church. They care ultimately about the glory of God. Number four. This first step is a much needed and much neglected ministry. And the absence of it is why the church is weak in its relationships. It's why, listen, I'm saying this in love, but I believe it's true. It's why you get your feelings hurt and you jump from church to church to church. And you take all of your baggage of broken relationships with you. Number five. This first step teaches us that every Christian is called to be a minister of holiness, helping guard the purity and the integrity of the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you belong to Jesus, if you are a part of His church, this is your ministry. Number six. When Christians lovingly exercise this first step of church discipline, they become the means of grace that God uses to restore His fallen children. Do you hear that this morning? You could be the tool, the means of grace that God would use to rescue one of His children. How good is God? Number seven. This one's hard. We must recognize that failing to practice this first step is a form of hatred toward our brothers and sisters. Our refusal to act says to the struggling Christian that we do not love them enough to warn them of the spiritual danger and the consequences that they are facing. You say that you love them so much that you don't want them to go through this process. But the Bible says that you don't love them. Because if you really love them, you would recognize the spiritual danger that they're in and the consequences that are headed into their life. And if you really love them, you would step into it and help them. Number eight. Those Christians who claim that church discipline is unloving and legalistic 
are deceived. Listen, I'm, I'm just I'm telling you in love this morning, but I'm absolutely going to tell you the truth. The reason why you think it is unloving and unkind is because you've never been confronted with this passage of Scripture through a sermon and you've not read your Bible properly. You think it's man-made. It's not. The loving Christian, like a loving earthly father, disciplines one another. Just like the heavenly father does. Do you know who God doesn't discipline? Those who don't belong to him. I'll illustrate it this way. When my kids were little and we'd go to the grocery store and they would uh, have a fit and act up, I disciplined them. While I was in the grocery store, I'd see other children that were having a fit and acting up. I wanted to discipline them. I wish the parents would have disciplined them. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't discipline them because they didn't belong to me. Proverbs says that if you refuse to discipline your children, you hate them. You don't love them. Discipline, whether it's in the home or whether it's in the church, is an act of love. And the world is never going to tell you that. The world would censor me for what I just said to you. I'm good with that. I'll stand on the truth. Number nine. We must realize that love that refuses to do something to rescue a brother from unrepentant sin and its consequences or that winks at sin or that is more concerned about keeping calm and peace in the church than it is for spiritual purity is not true biblical love. Love that tolerates sin is not God's love. It is worldly love. It is sentimental love. Number 10, this verse teaches that church discipline is commanded, it's loving, it's right, it's restorative, and it's healthy. And finally, this first step of church discipline, when practiced in love, is a picture and demonstration of God's love and it is a picture and demonstration of God's discipline. The Bible says that God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what that verse teaches us is that sin is so serious that it has eternal consequences and the only way that you or I could be rescued from our sin is for God to intervene. And God intervened through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life, a life that you could never live, and He lived it in your place for you, and who died a death that you deserve to die for sin, and He rose from the grave to defeat sin, death, and hell, and he ascended to heaven at the right hand of the Father, signifying his power and his rule and his reign. 
And sin was so serious that God demonstrated to you how serious it is by showing you how much he loves you by sending his son to die for you. And when you exercise church discipline, you are picturing God's love through his son, Jesus. You are saying to your brother or sister, this is how serious sin is. Jesus died for it. And you're also picturing God's discipline of love. Because the Bible says, whom God loves, he disciplines. And when you care enough to have this conversation, you are picturing God's loving discipline. Do you know what you're really doing, church? You are practicing and living out the gospel in one another's lives. So, it's heavy. But it's true. Now, I wonder today, who do you need to have a conversation with? Who do you need to talk to? What do you need to confess before God? I tell you, I'm not an expert at this. I'm a practitioner. And as I labored over this text all week, I told Gretchen last night, is it possible for a text when you're studying writing a sermon to physically beat you up? Because I feel like I've been physically beaten up writing this sermon. Because there are things I had to confess to God as I was dealing with the text. So I wonder, are there some things that you have to confess to God as you're dealing with this text? Who do you need to forgive today? Who do you need to release from the chains of your unforgiveness and your bitterness? And your resentment. Which of you today needs to turn to Christ and be saved? And which of you today needs to return to the fold? You've wandered, you've strayed. Christ, through his word, is calling you back. Let's pray.